What you're about to experience is one man's quest to see beyond the tumultuous period we're in and to envision what lies just beyond our grasp, yet well within our reach. Welcome to Larry Rifkin's America Trends, where the future has arrived, and it's just in time. Welcome back to America Trends. I'm Larry Rifkin. Cybersecurity. We hear the term bandied about all the time. So much so that we take for granted our efforts to secure our data or assume that the many functions we do now online through trusted institutions like our banks or financial concerns are protecting us, even when we receive notices that there's been a hack. We can't imagine that there's much value for a gang in Russia to use that personal material. These could be costly assumptions rooted in a sense of powerlessness to lock down what we store digitally. Let's game plan the possibilities for this lax approach today on America Trends. With us today on America Trends is Thomas Vartanian, and we're going to be talking to him about his new book, The Unhackable Internet how rebuilding cyberspace can create real security and prevent financial collapse. And it's really interesting. You lead the Financial Technology and Cybersecurity Center. And, of course, in the news recently, this issue of uh, this FTX. And uh, you talk about financial security. And, by the way, I found it very charming that in the Borowitz report, I don't know if you uh, get this uh, sent to you in your email inbox, but Andy Borowitz from The New Yorker, and uh, the headline that he sent out, and this is, of course, satire, but world shocked that man running business based on imaginary money might be fraud. So (laughs) you've got to help us to understand what we saw here with FTX and then broaden it out to a wider aperture to talk about our financial security in general on the Internet. Yeah, great, Larry. And I, it's, uh, I'm really happy to be here. This is terrific, and I appreciate it. So let me start with this crypto phenomenon, because it is really some one of the most astonishing phenomena we've had in financial services in a long time. And I've been in financial services 45 years, eight of them as a financial regulator and the rest as a lawyer, representing financial services companies doing things in this space. The thing about FTX and crypto is FTX is likely just another story about corporate misbehavior. And we've seen those over and over and over again, the savings and loan crisis, Enron crisis. You know, there's no end to those kinds of corporate misbehavior stories. They don't have to be necessarily about a bank or about a crypto. Uh, They're about people, right? They're about people doing things that that, uh, that don't exactly fit the corporate mode. But here, in the crypto world, the margin for error was so small, and that's largely because you've got people creating money and or securities out of thin air uh, who are completely unregulated. Now, the one thing we know about regulation in financial services, and you can look at the 2008 crisis to, to draw this conclusion, and that mm-hmm. is, when something isn't regulated, 
the highest risk in the marketplace gravitates towards that unregulated area of the economy. Why? Because they don't have other people looking at them. They don't have to pass a litmus test to get into the business. I mean, in the banking business, you've got to pass all kinds of litmus tests as to integrity and experience and intellect to be able to own a bank, even own a bank or run a bank. But in the crypto world, a convicted felon could start issuing a cryptocurrency tomorrow. So the margin for error in that business is going to be much smaller than in the financial services business. And while the FTX saga here does not look like a crypto saga, what happened here in terms of corporate misbehavior will affect crypto in every aspect moving forward. And let me give you one example. The one example is if you're a holder of crypto with FTX and you don't see your money in five years or you don't see any money at all ever, that's going to have an impact on your confidence in the crypto business and your willingness to be in this business. So that's going to have an impact going forward long term. And to, to, to sort of close out this point, let me offer you a quote I heard several <laughs> uh, times about crypto, and it is, anyone foolish enough to pay real money for the privilege of moving nothing around inside nowhere to accomplish no purpose deserves to lose their real money. Wow. Uh, well, let me get back to the basic premise of your book, which is that many of us, though we're not as in the dark as those who might have invested in uh, this fraudster's uh, activities, each day, you say, we're constructing a larger and more expansive, insecure virtual world that we can't control. Too many fake personas, anonymity, and malice is on board. And that's the whole point of the idea of trying to build a better, more unhackable Internet, because today we're all up on it. We're all really susceptible uh, to whatever is happening in this space, and yet we understand it so little. Yeah, so let me start with, with the understanding that I work in financial technology for some 20 to 30 years, and what I did was represent large financial institutions around the world who were setting up Internet interfaces, online banking back in the 90s, uh, all kinds of joint ventures with uh, Internet-related companies to provide a more uh, facile, efficient interface for their customers to stay up with competition and hopefully to, to, to create a more profitable business. And that's all good stuff, right? It's all great. And the problem was, is, and, and I count myself among these people, we were all captivated by the euphoria of technology, all the things it could do, all the speed it could add to, to our uh, transactions, all of the good things and the quality of life enhancements that technology added sort of blinded us and mesmerized us to the fact that there are a lot of bad people trying to do a lot of things with an insecure Internet, internet that we were creating. And so after a number of years doing this, and particularly after a number of the financial institutions that I represented had had hacks and incursion, incursions into databases, I started to conclude that we had gotten out of balance. We had put too much of, of our faith in the euphoria and mesmerization of technology and not enough emphasis on security. And that has continued till today. And so what's happened is, and this really sort of illustrates the point as, as simply as I can in the book, 
we are moving every aspect of our analog real lives onto the internet. I don't think anybody debates that, right? Because Correct. if you don't, you don't, you're basically sentenced to isolationism. You can't be off the grid. You can't be off the internet uh, unless you want to live in the mountains somewhere. And so we're all moving every aspect of our analog lives onto the internet. Now that includes every inch of personal data about us and every ounce of value that we have, whether it's savings accounts, investments, checking accounts, securities, crypto, whatever it is, it's all going online and it's all available to, to, to being uh, attacked. What struck me when I was thinking about this over the years and, and sort of converting from the euphoria of technology to the emphasis on security is that if we're moving our entire lives online, how is it that in the real world we have locks on our doors, we have fences around our properties, <laughs> we have borders around our countries, and we have police and armies to enforce all those rules. But when it comes to the Internet, we put our entire lives onto something that has none of that, no borders, no fences, no Coast Guard, no nothing. So, you know, and I asked the question in the book several times, if your money disappeared tomorrow morning, if you woke up and there were no investments and no money, do you know who the cyber police are? Do you know what their phone number is? Who would you call? I mean, that's the craziness of this all is that we've gotten lost in euphoria. And Mark Zuckerberg, you know, sort of characterized this by saying move fast and break things. We've gotten, we've gotten caught up in our own euphoria of technology without thinking about the dark side. And the dark side is there, and there are more and more adverse hostile nations, criminal cartels, fanatics, terrorists, anybody you can imagine using the Internet to take the money that's in our pockets and put it in theirs. Well, you also point out in the book that we all thought this was a fun house, that this was all for play until, as you say, we began to move our entire analog life onto this platform, and there is no going back. I was just teaching a course for older learner, learners like myself uh, at a, a local college, and uh, we started talking about this. How long do you have to say, yeah, I want paper, I want a paper statement? Uh, pretty soon, you may say that, they may say no, or they may say that'll cost you, you know, X amount of money if you want to keep it that way. But that will all start to move inexorably uh, into a digital space uh, without the option, I would say, within the next five to ten years. So the question really is that if, in fact, this is all inevitable, why aren't we paying more attention why don't the democracies of the world, because as you point out, we're not just talking about our money, which is really wildly important to us, but we're talking about our national security. We're talking about a whole range of activities. And even in the book, you were honest enough to say that you got locked out. Now, here you are, so expert in a lot of this, to your bank accounts and what you had to go through. So this is serious business we're talking about here. Yeah, precisely. And, you know, the question I think you ask is, is the fundamental question of the day. You know, we see a lot of issues put in our face by politicians and other people as the most critical and existential issues of the day. I, I think this one's way up there uh, in terms of the potential to lose your money, to lose your democracy, to lose your freedom. 
Uh, and I don't think those are overstatements when you see what people are trying to do around the world, countries like China are doing with, with technology. But why are we not paying attention? Well, I asked myself that question, and that's why I recounted 25 years of government reports in the book. And what I concluded was that the Clinton administration identified all of the problems 25 years ago that we were going to face in terms of the threats to critical infrastructure, the threats to personal security, and they said, here's what we need to do. That's 25 years ago. Since then, I reviewed some 100 reports by government, non-government agencies, Congress, regulatory agencies, all sort of following up on these key points. And everybody keeps saying the same thing. This is really a, uh, going to put us in a very vulnerable position at some point if we're not there already. And here are the things we need to do. And they, they never really ever get done, right? Because as you realize after a while, the government can't do it. Why can't the government do it? Because the Internet, 95% of the Internet, is within the, within the jurisdiction of users, people, businesses, corporations. The government can't do it by itself. It's got to be a joint venture between the government and industry. So why isn't industry doing it? Well, the answer to that, as I, as I suggest in the book, is because the markets, the capital markets, the retail markets, all of the markets, they reward innovation. If you're first to market in, in a new technological delivery system and you make money off it, you get rewarded financially. The problem is, is that there aren't really significant penalties for insecurities. So if I'm an executive of a major corporation and I'm looking at the penalty I can pay for having insecure software or hardware or vulnerabilities in my system against the profit I can make by getting those systems to market first and marketing the hell out of them, I see that I can make a lot more money from technology than it's going to cost me if I have insecure technologies or software. And so what's happened throughout the world is we have a launch first, patch second approach. And what that means is, is, is that we're continuously launching software and hardware that is insecure on the theory that, well, if somebody breaches it, we'll patch it later. But that creates an environment where we're creating, constantly creating vulnerabilities. And many experts have suggested we're creating vulnerabilities about twice as fast as we're, as we're resolving them. That leaves you in a position of saying we are constantly creating a, an environment for our most important data and, and all the value that we have that's increasingly getting more and more insecure, particularly as technology gets cheaper and can be in the hands of all kinds of fanatics and terrorists. I mean, look, when we were dealing with nuclear proliferation, you knew only, only nations could afford that kind of, of, of weaponry. Not so with the technology that's coming out that can do enormous damage to corporations and businesses, as we've seen over the last 15 years in terms of the enormous hacks and breaches and uh, interference that has been played out online. So, you know, I think at the end of the day, Larry, what has to happen here is people have to come to their senses. There's a great report by the Cyberspace Solarian Commission, which is a combination of politicians, academics, uh, and other technicians which has basically said, look, we have to do something here. It's a government report put out in March 2020. We've got to do something here or else we're going to be gobbled up by the insecurities of the Internet. And some of it was adopted into legislation over the last two years, 
But like every other report that comes out, it just sort of finds its way into the desert and dies a miserable death uh, as, you know, as other things overtake it. And, and so what I've suggested is we've got an interesting choice here. We can either keep going on the path that we're on or we can face some sort of financial Armageddon or digital Pearl Harbor because it will happen. There's no doubt that the capabilities to do it today are there. Well, recently, when we just saw when uh, a particular county in North Carolina was attacked uh, substations with their electrical grid, how much damage uh, that individual or individuals uh, did, I keep thinking that for me, one of the worst vulnerabilities, aside from waking up, going online, looking at my portfolio and finding that all I had worked for my entire life was somehow deleted or erased, I think most of us assume oh, don't worry, the institution that I'm working with, they'll figure it out and they'll get me back. And by the way, there are a lot of young people, Thomas, as you know, who live online totally and they think they've escaped any penalty even when they read that Bank of America was hit and Chase and so forth. Do you think that stopped them from using their credit card that day? Yeah, not at all. And, and, and you make an interesting point, Larry, and that is what I consider to be sort of the, uh, the government head fake in all of this. And what I mean by that is when you have extensive regulatory systems, as we have in this country for so many industries, I mean, I worked all these decades in the financial services business. It is probably as probably there's nothing more regulated in financial services in this country than perhaps nuclear technology. I mean, there's almost every aspect of it is regulated. And so, you know, there's an understanding by consumers that if it's happening, the government is letting it happen. It's okay. Well, when it comes to technology and the Internet, that's not the case. And I think the, the normal consumer out there says, well, if the government is letting this happen, if the government is letting this go online, it must be okay. It's like the old commercial uh, that, that used to be on the television that says if it's on the, if it's on the Internet, it must be true. Well, that's not right, you know. It's not true. And, and if you think the corporation you're dealing with is, is going to protect every aspect of your financial, intellectual, and personal life, that's not true either. I mean, they're trying as best as they can. But, you know, when I, when I was representing financial institutions that were hacked, it was interesting to me that every time we went in to do an internal investigation of the situation, the financial institution would point fingers at the outside service providers because think about it. Financial institutions don't create the technology. They don't create the – they hire all that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. They buy all that infrastructure, and when it goes wrong, they have to look to the outside service provider to see what happened and why it happened. It's much like there was a major financial institution that had a, a, an incursion through the cloud. And and when it happened, I mean, they pointed their fingers at the at the, at the cloud provider. You know, it's a, it's a complicated world where if you are if you think you should have confidence that somebody's protecting you, you're wrong. If you think that everything is safe because the government is allowing allowing it to happen, you're wrong. The unhackable internet. Thomas Vartanian is with us. And the one, again, that I probably stopped my thought process because I was kind of going in various directions. And that's what this book, by the way, 
gets you doing. It gets you thinking about your relationship with cyberspace, how much you really understand, how much you are involuntarily putting online, let alone voluntarily, and what should you be most concerned about. But I think overall, whenever I think about the vulnerability of being you know, pushed back into the Stone Age, and the Stone Age for me, Thomas, would be five to ten days uh, without my power and the impact if somebody hacked our grids. Now, we've talked about this a lot. I mean, you've seen various uh, scenarios played out on television and such, but yet we sit here thinking blithely somebody will figure that out, uh, but they, mo they may not be able to, and there is this zero-sum game that we and the Russians can play. We can push them back into the Stone Age. They can push us back into the Stone Age. We don't do it because of the mutually assured destruction, but there may be a party that doesn't really care that his people are in the cold. We've seen the Russians in Ukraine. You know, that's exactly right. I mean, we could turn the lights out in any country we want tomorrow, and we could have our lights turned out tomorrow by any country in the world. I mean, it's not a secret that that can happen, and it's not happening among nations because of the mutually assured destruction feature. And that is, you know, you do it to me, I'll do it to you. And what good is it if my economy goes down, which you rely on? I mean, interestingly enough, China and the United States rely on each other's economies intimately. And so for China to take down the U.S. economy, that's not the smartest thing in the world. Neither is it for the U.S. to take down the Chinese economy. But the problem is, is that, as I said before, and you've just suggested, technology is getting cheaper and cheaper and finding its hands in the people who don't play by the laws of civil discourse, that aren't nations themselves. Uh, what if this technology ends up in the hands of terrorists who really could care less what the ramifications are of what they're doing except for absolute destruction and damage? And, you know, we do a terrific job, I think, of fending off cybersecurity incursions. I mean, I used to talk to my clients, and they say, well, we had 1,000 or 2,000 or 20,000 today that we fought off. Uh, and, and whether those are a kid in the basement or uh, the Chinese affiliates or partners or Russians, who knows what it is. Point is, we can't do that forever. And what really sort of got me writing the book in the first place, because I've been thinking about this for the last 30 years as I saw what was happening in practice sort of play out, what got me writing the book was uh, that uh, I thought that we were on a course that was going to end up in some sort of digital Pearl Harbor, and that unless we start undertaking a discussion of these issues and trying to figure out how to deal with them, we're just going to blithely continue on this path of ultimate destruction. And when people who aren't living by the rules get these technologies and are able to use them, to either take down an internet, destroy some of the data, remove the data on it, or make it unavailable, you just suggested the unavailability of the power grid would be a shocking thing to, to Americans. But it's not like it can't happen, and it's not like it hasn't happened in nations around the world. You know, the interesting thing, when you read about artificial intelligence and its role in this, which is the next sort of frontier here, the interesting thing is, and this is sort of consistent with the trend line that I'm playing out, Interesting thing is that the scientists are now telling us, neuroscientists are now telling us that the human mind is getting dumber because of the Internet. Think about it. 
<laughs> you now got the internet to think for you. So all you've got to do is look. It's just a foraging exercise, right? And 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 the internet is doing the thinking for you, which means your brain isn't forming the the, the synapses it usually forms to grow and remain vibrant. At the same time, machines are getting smarter every day from artificial intelligence, machine learning, artificial general intelligence. So think about it. We've got two lines here that are going to cross sometime in the future. Humans are getting dumber and machines are getting smarter. <laughs> now, I remember the Matrix movies, and I used to think they were complete fantasy. I don't believe that anymore. <laughs> well, you tell us in the book that the greatest threats are yet to come, and we're still way unprepared. You say it's time to stop before we lose control of our futures. How do we do that? In other words, this thing is so amorphous, so huge, so ungoverned, if you will. There are, as I understand it, no international treaties uh, to help us through the thicket of some of these issues that we would all, as democracies at least, like to tackle. We're working on climate change, which is another existential one at the moment. But this, too, is an existential one. So how do we start to stop? if you will. Yeah, so here's, here's what I found was the problem with that. Over the last 25 years as the Internet has proliferated and grown and expanded, what has happened is it's not like there haven't been government alliances and treaties and agreements and discussions. There have been too many. The fact is there are so many discussions, so many alliances, so many coffee clutches on this, and so many agencies in so many countries responsible for bits and pieces that nobody's responsible for anything. You know, the problem has become so segmented. I mean, I'll give you an example. President Biden, May 12th last year, put out his executive order on cybersecurity. It was basically a, a rehashing of every executive order that has come out since the Clinton administration, from Bush, Obama, Trump, you know, basically a rehash and a cut and paste job of the executive orders that have been done. So nothing novel, nothing new. It, it, it is just a repetition of the past, and one of the points that sticks out in me in all of these executive orders and all of these government reports, and President Biden did it, he delegated the task of dealing with cybersecurity to 24 federal agencies. Now, you know if 24 federal agencies are responsible for something, nobody's responsible for anything, mm -hmm. right? So no one's in charge. And that's what I say at the end of the book, because <clears throat> a friend of mine asked me, said, well, you have to answer the question of how you fix this. And what I concluded in the book was we only fix it when we get better leaders. It's a leadership problem because our leaders are not prioritizing problems properly. They're not analyzing them properly. They're not understanding them properly. They're driven by money, right? They prioritize the problems that they think will help them raise money to get elected. And it's nothing to do with the reality of what's a problem or what's not a problem, right? <laughs> So until we get better leaders who are willing to stand up and say, this is a problem and here's what we need to do, there isn't going to be a solution. You say that we need a new Internet. Now, somebody listening might say, well, wait a minute, I'm just getting facile with the old one, or I'm as confused as I can be on this one. What is the new Internet? And help me understand where that intersects with this whole idea that Mark Zuckerberg mentioned again here on the podcast, as you did earlier, uh, wants to build this whole metaverse on top of all. Explain this. Let me start with Mark Zuckerberg and, and work backwards. The metaverse. 
you can read about the metaverse as much as you want today. If you spend 24 hours reading about it, I'm not sure you'd understand any better than before you started. <laughs> because it's one of those terms that has an indefinite number of definitions. Tell me who you're talking to, and I'll tell you what the definition of the Internet is. But I, I view the Internet as the next step of video gaming, right? Virtual reality video game. It's the next step where everything steps into the realm of video unreality or reality, whichever you want to call it. It's the next step in what I think is probably the the agglomeration of the Internet and, and human intelligence. And so, you know, you're looking at a future where it's just sort of an amorphous glob of computers and human intelligence interrelating in ways that have no rules. No rules, no police, no borders, no fences. As I say, you know, it, it is virtual anarchy because – if you're going to move your life into the into the realm of the Internet, there ought to be rules. I mean, why is it that we can't do anything in the real world anonymously and everything we do online is anonymous? Why is that? I mean, it's just nuts. So what, what I've argued in the book is, is that the new Internet really won't be a new Internet. And there's a lot of things going on thinking about Web3, for example, different forms of Internet that are decentralized, where the data is on my computer rather than some company's computer, right? And that would be a remarkable change in and of itself. But what I'm suggesting really in, 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 in short form here is, number one, the disappearance of anonymity. We need authentication to people, not to machines or IP addresses. Number two, there needs to be governance and rules online. Mm -hmm. Number three, there needs to be police enforcing them. And, they, and if you don't follow the rules, you don't go online or your software has a kill switch in it, and the kill switch is pulled. And lastly, what I've suggested for uh, critical infrastructures is going back to the world I started in in the 1970s when I was representing and working with banks, and that is proprietary networks. You know, a bank would have never thought in the 70s and 80s of ever going near anything that was an open architecture internet. It were, they were all on proprietary networks for all their payment systems. Why can't we go back to that for critical infrastructures? You can transport yourself from the real, from the current internet into critical infrastructures, but only, only if you have a passport, only if agreed to the rules, and only if you agree that if you violate the rules, you're gone, virtually gone. And so I think secure private networks, offshooting off the, is what we've got to start thinking about again, uh, to avoid what what you would have referred to and I referred to as this sort of a virtual funhouse, because it's great when you're having fun. It's not great when you're moving billions of dollars or the most sensitive information about your life. And so I think at the end of the day, uh, what we've really got to do is sort of think about, change the balance, put security up there with innovation, mm. treat them equally. I'm not saying... We can't live without technology. We can't live without innovation. It changes the quality of life and enhances the quality of life enormously. But just put security up there on an equal pedestal with innovation and sort of balance what we're doing so that we don't create these enormously uh, insecure and vulnerable networks that we're all sort of playing on and thinking somebody's protecting us all of the time. And by the way, you do give in the book all these ingredients of a safer Internet, and you talked about authentication, you talked about governance and choke points and such. He's got a lot more information in the book about what needs to be done.
so he has not skirted the issue about, uh, you know, you, you tell us what the problems are, but, you know, you don't give us the solutions. He really has an exhaustive uh, list uh, there. Now, let me ask you about two things. And then, you know, I want to be as brief as I can. But, again, there's so much to cover in this uh, space. Cloud computing, where we're putting everything up on the cloud. Now, I had another guest a couple of months ago, and he was great, as you are, uh, explaining how he thinks this is such a huge new revolution that will allow companies and others to work together from afar and really be building processes, uh, you know, that we've never really experienced in this way as we're building these huge data centers and such. What is your take on the impact of the cloud in all of this and the protections needed for that? Yeah, so it's a great question because it's a question of the future here because everything is moving to the cloud. And, you know, I'm sure most people don't understand what the cloud is. They, when you mention the cloud, you look up in the sky and say, well, there must be some data floating around up there. Well, No, they think it's really to keep their pictures stored right, somewhere. Right, right, yeah, but the cloud is basically huge server farms uh, in remote areas. I mean, if you go to Utah, you can find some in the desert, right? And, and they're server farms where data is being housed so that you don't have to house it on your computer and constantly be buying more powerful computers to hold the data. Now, that's a convenience there. There's a, there's a facility there in terms of doing business. There's all kinds of benefits, economic, efficiency, that come from that. And, and we ought to be working on that, and we ought to be making sure that it serves the purposes that we have in the future. But, again, it's the balance, Right. I think we're getting caught up in the euphoria of the cloud without understanding the balance for security. So let me let me give you one example. The cloud is the creation of a virtual Fort Knox, meaning that now you don't have to go after 25 different computer systems. You go after the cloud and you get the same data because it's all aggregated there. So if you if you're looking to create something that is the honey to the bees who are criminals and hostile nation states and hackers and terrorists, you're creating it in the cloud, which makes the security of the cloud all the more important because you've now put all the gold in Fort Knox in one place, right? And you better damn well have very good locks on it. And I wonder, I wonder if because of the imbalance between innovation and security, the impetus to get there first, to create the biggest and the best technological provider is short-selling us on the security aspects of this. And we've already seen it already when the cloud has been penetrated several times because of incursions. Now, the incursions can be human frailty. I mean, the most critical and probably the most ubiquitous form of insecurity to the Internet is somebody who inadvertently hands, hands their password out to somebody else, right? Or, or, or someone who inadvertently provides access to a system to somebody else. So the human aspect of this is enormous and is probably covers most of the incursions and most of the hacks and problems we see every day. But we need to start dealing with all of those, whether they be human, operational, software, hardware, and understand how we can solve the problem. Because here's what really struck me working in the business and then writing the book and thinking about this over the last three years. Why is it that when you look at everything we do with the Internet 
and hacks and incursions. 90% of it is focused on getting up and running again after the hack. There is a certain inevitability to the hack, a certain expectation, and that is it will happen. It happens to everybody, and it's, it could take you down. And so what we have to do is figure out systems, backup systems, to get up on our feet as quickly as possible. I started thinking about that and saying to myself, you know, that is enormously defeatist. Who is it that's, that builds something, understanding it's going to be knocked down, and just focuses on how to rebuild it? I mean, if that's the way we did military defense, all we would need was the Army Corps of Engineers to rebuild after everything was knocked down. And that's not what we do. And so I started thinking about, well, how do we stop the incursion? How do we stop the inevitability of all this and, and so that we don't have to focus so many resources on rebuilding? And that's, that's essentially what the book is about. Oh, yeah. Now, let me ask you in closing. I saw a really interesting article in Politico recently, shadow boxing and geopolitics on the dark web. The takedown of a Russian dark net marketplace exposed cracks within the cyber criminal underworld and the global effort to shut down these digital black markets. Now, I've got a congressman from my state who I think is a pretty sharp guy who's on top of this, uh, Representative Jim Himes. He chairs the House Subcommittee on National Security Monetary Policy. He said that the criminals who make use of dark nets are particularly dangerous because they need relatively few resources to hack and compromise massive computing systems in the U.S. It is the ultimate asymmetric threat. Explain that. Yeah, absolutely. So if you can use the dark net and you can move around anonymously, uh, from server to server, country to country, without any trace, uh, traceability to what you're doing. It is an enormous temptation for evil people, whether they be nation states, individuals, fanatics, terrorists, criminal cartels. I mean, there are stories about, you know, organized crime going more into uh, computer crime now because it's easier, safer, and, and harder to get caught. You know, and I guess that's a, an interesting transition for the mafia. <laughs> but it's... it's <laughs> But, but some of those guys, I don't know how computer literate they are. Right. I mean, well, listen, I mean, at the end of the day, you just hire it, right? You buy it. Like anything else. <laughs> but to get back to the dark net, the reason I, I sort of focused on the dark net a little in the book is because I started asking myself the question, well, how can we create sort of these supplemental or ancillary channels that are more secure? And it dawned upon me that we've already got channels out there that are hard to get on, but once you do, you know, you're on a different network. So to get on the dark net, you know, you've got to use a different browser entirely. You've got to use the Tor browser, T-O-R, to get on the dark net. I'm sure most people have never done it because much of what it's for, you know, it's interesting. It was The dark net was essentially started by, again, military components in this country that wanted a place to communicate in, in high, uh, high anonymity. And journalists started using it and others. Well, of course, at some point, the bad guys get a hold of it, right? And so today, you can be on the dark net, and, and you can only get certain places by using a certain type of browser. And that started to speak to me and say, well, look, the people who say we can't set up alternative networks that are safe are ignoring the alternative networks we already have that are completely unsafe. So why can't we just create a new browser for a new channel and a new Internet that is highly secure. Now, here's an interesting thing that I don't really understand, 
And that is when I've talked to technicians and I've had computer scientists and other people read the book, it's interesting. They all defend where we are and how we got here uh, as if it's their, you know, brainchild. Uh, but the interesting thing is when it comes to technology, technologists will tell you we can do anything, except they can't seem to figure out how to make a secure Internet. I don't understand it, you know. I mean, if we can do anything, we can create a secure Internet. And here's the problem. Fundamental problem I see is up until this point, we've been led by tacticians, technologists, and academicians. We have not been led and we have not given enough ground uh, to work with strategists. We are not working with strategists. We're working with tacticians, technicians, and academics. And that's why I think we've got to some of the problems we've got. And that's why we're moving in a straight line as opposed to sort of working ourselves around these problems. We need strategic thinkers reworking the Internet, not technologists and not tacticians. You know, it's really interesting, though. Um, I was talking recently. My cousin married the guy who led the team at Intel that built the microprocessor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yet he relies so little on the Internet. Uh, he doesn't trust it. He writes out checks. He uses real maps doesn't use GPS, which is a cloud-based function. I think that's another uh, use for the cloud that people don't even know it's the cloud. It's pretty remarkable that uh, he figured out that what he helped to build uh, really has its own uh, fallibility. Well, anyway, I cannot thank you enough. This was incredible to uh, talk with you. Thomas Martanian, look for this book, The Unhackable Internet how rebuilding cyberspace can create real security and prevent financial collapse. Thank you so much, and amen for that. Thank you, Thomas, for being with us on America Trends. Larry, thanks for having me. It was a real pleasure.